How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. This podcast features David M. Rubenstein in conversation with Billie Jean King. Let's talk about the beginning of your career as a tennis player. So most tennis players, when you were beginning, probably like late 50s, early 60s, came from upper income families, not always, but you came from a blue collar family. So how did your blue collar family afford the lessons and where did you get the inspiration to become a tennis player as opposed to some other sport? I went to uh, Los Cerritos Public School and Los Cerritos is situated in a very high uh, economic uh, group. I mean, everybody went there except on the other side of the tracks were Randy and I, my younger brother, and I grew up um, Wrigley Heights. Susan Williams was one of those people that belonged to the Virginia Country Club there, which is, it's still there, it's a beautiful club in Long Beach. And she said, she's sitting next to me in fifth grade, and she says, you wanna play tennis? And I said, what's tennis? <laughs> and she says, you don't know what tennis is? I said, no, what do you do? She says, you get to run, jump, and hit a ball. And I said, Oh, those are my three most favorite things. I want to try it. So I went out and we hit. But I thought, well, if it only played at country clubs, I'm not going to be able to play full time. But then we also were on a softball team at Houghton Park. And Susan told the coach, Val Halloran, you know, I took Billy out to play tennis. And Val Halloran said, well, they get free instruction here every Tuesday. So now we're talking. I heard the, the magical word free. And, it, and it was, I knew I'd have access. And that changed my whole life. So uh, some people are natural athletes. You were not a natural athlete, would you say, or you were a natural athlete? My younger brother who played 12 years in the major leagues of baseball. Yeah, we were very fortunate to be born, very well coordinated. Okay. My, my dad was good at basketball. My mother was great at swimming. They loved to dance. My parents loved to dance. That's why I grew up with the big band sound. But you had, you had not perfect eyesight, right? You had to wear glasses playing tennis. With glasses, I'm 2010. I'm actually okay. better than normal. So when you were beginning to play as a teenager, when did you realize that actually you weren't just good as a local person in your neighborhood? You might be really one of the best in Southern California, one of the best in California, maybe one of the best in the country. When did you come to that realization? Well, I think what really matters is the first time I went to the Houghton Park with Clyde Walker at the public park at the end of that, which was the second time I picked up a racket. Susan was the first time. Clyde was the second time at the park, finally getting some free instruction. At the end of that, I knew I wanted to be number one player in the world. Okay. So my poor mother, who's coming to pick me up, I get right. in the car and I'm bouncing on the seat, which I'm not supposed to do. And she says, calm down. I said, mommy, mommy, I know what I'm going to do with my life now. And she's going, yes, what is that? And I said, I'm going to be the number one player in the world, tennis player, and she's going, that's fine, but you have homework and piano, right, and, you right, know, the usual, right. you know. My mom was great at keeping us very grounded, which I now really appreciate. So when did you back. finally play um, outside of California? Well, Southern California, first you play in Southern California, and that was tough. 
I was number two in Long Beach behind Susan. <laughs> so that's how I got started. And the first summer I played, which was a year later, to get a ranking, uh, I won one match. I won the first match I played, and the rest of the summer I did not win one match. And that got me more fired up. Every time I'd lose, I got more fire in the belly. But Clyde was really good with me. He said, Billy, you're a better athlete. You just don't have the experience these kids have. They've had more lessons and all that right. than you'll ever have had at this stage. Most of these kids had already played five years or something. He said, you just stay in the process to be number one. And I didn't care about junior tennis that much. And if you right. listen to Pete Sampras and you hear him talk, because people will ask him, uh, neither one of us were number one in the juniors. And everything he thought about was being number one in the world of men's tennis. And you want to keep developing your game. And one of the hardest things to teach young people today is they care too much about the ranking and their points and all. They're always chasing points to get a ranking. But rankings help them sometimes get money from the USTA to help them or whatever, the national governing body. But I keep trying to explain to them that you have to keep developing your game. Sometimes I would lose, but I was trying to do the right, right. thing. So it wasn't a mental error. It was an execution uh, error because I hadn't gotten good enough right. yet. But when you got good enough to play outside of California, yes. were you able to win tournaments in, in, in the East Coast? or? Well, the first place we went was Middletown, Ohio, in the 15 and under nationals. And you have to have a chaperone. And my, we couldn't afford to go on the airplane, so we took the train. And The train I, from California to? L.A. to, to Middletown. How to, many uh, weeks did that take? Took three, it, took, <laughs> it, took, it, took, it took three and a half days. I loved every second. When you got there, you couldn't have been in great shape because you're... It wasn't great, but we had time. We had a day or so, yeah. and uh, I didn't do well. I lost in the quarters. I never played on hard true, and I lost to Carol Hanks from St. Louis. We got killed, but I didn't win the junior nationals. Even on grass in Philadelphia, which is the next three years, All right. I was a runner-up twice. The first finals. major tournament that you really did well in, national tournament, which one was that? Was that in Well, the most Hills? fun one, the most exciting one, was when Karen Hanson and I won doubles in 1961 at Wimbledon, because I love team sports better than individual. So mixed and doubles mean probably more to me um, than the singles. When did you uh, win a Wimbledon singles the first time? Uh, 1966, against Maria Bueno at okay. Wimbledon. And then U.S. Open first time singles? 1967 okay. against Dan Jones. So your first Grand Slam of the 39 was... With Mick, Karen. Was Karen doubles in uh, Wimbledon. Right, Wimbledon, so, 1961. So how did you go over? Did you... I guess you didn't take... A, no, we had to take a plane by then. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, um, by the way, when you're playing uh, doubles, you've won... I love it. ...mixed doubles, and uh, of and the 39 doubles. titles, uh, many of them were in mixed doubles and doubles, right? Absolutely. I didn't care if I won all the majors. I cared more about the tour. In fact, I only made the Australian and the French a one-time goal. Just win them once, get them out of the way. And when you have mixed doubles, mm -hmm. is, is it considered appropriate or inappropriate for a man, if he has the ability to slam the ball and it's a woman, do you not do that? It's not oh, no, you do that. You, that's a considered okay. If the woman's considered weaker, you go, go at her on every ball. Really? Absolutely. That's why I liked it. Okay. <laughs> you know why? It's, you're, in, you're in it. It's really right. good. Mixed well, doubles, I know I'm going to get the ball. The Owen players. Davidson's who I played best with. He's well, an Aussie lefty from uh, well, He won a lot of doubles tournaments. So when you, when you uh, talk to a partner, you, you always see the players talking on the court. What are they actually saying? They don't say you're screwing up or they're saying, what are they really saying? Well, they talk a lot more today. If you look at our matches, we 
played so much faster than they do today. Today they have to have a press conference between each party. Right, right. I mean, it's like, I'm looking at them like, really? Right, right. Because first of all, it's all math, okay? In tennis, you're, and in, and if you're, say, a goalie in hockey, which I know nothing about, but I watched one night, I go, I'm just gonna watch the goalie. We're always bisecting the angle, okay? And if you play doubles, it's just, to me, it's so obvious you take space where they've left and all that. It's like playing basketball, you know. It's, 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 it's all math. So understand the math, play the percentages. You look at each other, for instance, whose volley is best right. up the, in the middle? Like, if you're going to clash, if the ball goes up the middle, who's going to take it usually, if you both can get to it? That should be decided. Like, most people are taught it's the forehand. Karen and I, when right. we played, it was the backhand, because our backhand volleys were so superior to our forehand volleys. So you want to use your strengths, and that's another thing. Everyone should be working well, on their how strengths. How does it work when, let's suppose, somebody calls you and says, well, I'd like you to be my doubles partner at Wimbledon, and you really don't want to be their doubles partner because you don't think they're that good. What do you, how do you gracefully say, well, well I'm going to do something else? In the old days, we didn't do that. Whoever asked first got that. Oh, really? It. Yep, in the old days. That's why I, today that wouldn't happen. I would choose who I thought I could win with. I played two years with Ben Testerman, who I adore. I still am friends with him. Uh, I was helping him as a junior player, and I said, let's play mixed because I knew it would help him. We're not going to win. We got yeah. to the quarters one year, which is a miracle. I didn't, you know, I mean, like, it was amazing. Now, when a tennis player is um, bouncing the ball. Yes. Before, why, why do they, what's the theory behind bouncing it four or five, six times? Well, you're going you through your rituals. The women in the locker room used to watch Jimmy Connors and have this bet how many bounces he was going to do. Yeah. You know, we had fun with that. We had a great time. But does the game. ball get stronger when it's, you bounce it more no. or something? Or is that... What he's doing is you're, you're going through your rituals. Um, All right. For instance, if I'm going to serve, I usually bounce twice. Now, when you were playing, uh, wooden rackets were all that existed yes, in the early part. Yeah, mo mostly um, ash. He's made out of ash. So today, the rackets are so much stronger, right? You should hear Martina Navratilova because she's still playing senior events. She walks in, she goes, these rackets are so easy. You can miss it, they go in. You can do anything. You can slice, you can topspin. She said, this is a joke compared to wooden rackets. Right. She said, it's so much easier. I said, but that's fun, particularly for um, non-professionals, for recreational right. players. I want to make it fun for the critical mass of people. Now, many adults play more doubles than they play singles. Yes. Why is it that television ratings are such that doubles don't get shown very much on TV? And why do people seem to want to watch singles more than doubles? Well, I like doubles more than singles. So I think it's because it's the way it's uh, the exposure and the interest, and then some people like that mono-mono thing, mono on mono. It's been promoted a certain way. I personally would change it. I, in fact, in the 70s said, why don't we give 80% of the price money to doubles and 20% of singles, and we'll see what happens over the next right. well, 10 years. Well, you get more people playing And everybody doubles, looked right? at me and said, no way. And I said, I think you're wrong. Let's talk about money, for example. Um, the many tournaments that you played early on, mm -hmm. Wimbledon and U.S. Open and Forest Hills, uh, all you got was a trophy. There was no Correct. money in those days. Yeah. So well, we didn't get the trophy either. We got to breathe on it and give it back. So when you uh, <laughs> when you won Wimbledon, the first time you won Wimbledon, 1961 doubles, did you actually get any money? You get no, no money. We had expense money, $14 a day we lived on. So how did people like you afford to go to Wimbledon to play these tournaments? People in Long Beach made my life. Uh, Harold Guyver in Long Beach, who was a, a lefty, good player, but was number one in the world in bridge for a while. Um, he really believed in me. He saw me lose to Maria Bueno when I was either 15 or 16 at the Pacific Southwest at the Los Angeles Tennis Club. He said, I want to send you to Wimbledon next year. And I said, no, I'm not good enough. So I waited an extra year. 
You'd never hear a kid say that today. If someone offered, yeah, I'll take it. I'm like, no, 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 no. I haven't earned it yet. And then the Long Beach Tennis Patrons, which had just gotten started, Long Beach Century Club, lawyers and doctors in Long Beach would give me $50 each. And they are the reason people in Long Beach, Clyde Walker through the park and rec, having access to park and rec, having these people who believed enough in me. um, They would sponsor you, in other words. They did sponsor me, absolutely. And they didn't ask for it back. When did it start that you were actually getting paid? I mean, was it you? 1968, when you hear the word open tennis or modern, the modern era, that's what they mean. It was from 1968 when we got our first check. Like when Rod Laver won Wimbledon in 1968, he won 2,000 pounds. And when I won it, the women's singles, right. I got 750 pounds. And then I went, oh, no, here's another challenge. Right. Women weren't getting equal pay. Absolutely not. So at what point did you try to make people realize maybe they should get the same pay or prize money? Well, it's probably that moment I got that 750. Uh, <laughs> I did. I, I, I remember getting that. I'm going, aren't the same amount of people in the stadium watching us? Well, now there's Also, a- I want to fight for equality. See, what people don't realize, in some ways we probably don't, we still don't make the money the men do because the tour makes more. But the majors, it took us from 1968 to 2007. We finally hey. got... Uh, equal prize money in the majors. That was a long haul behind the scenes. Larry Scott was huge. He was our executive director with the Women's Tennis Association. We had all kinds of people. We got Venus being the, the front person, so the world would see a current player. But when you were coming up, the women had tournaments, but there was no tour. Is that right? There was no women's tour. It's so confusing. There was a contract pro tour. They called it the Jack Kramer tour. Somebody else owned it before that. And that's what Bobby Riggs played after he uh, was finished to make a living. Uh, people like Jack Kramer. What would happen is the men players would win Wimbledon and then turn pro right. to make a living because a lot of them were married, have children, and they had to. And they were on the road 11 months a year, putting down a court, barnstorming every night. The equivalent of that, there didn't exist for women at the no, time. No, no, of course not. They had one match, but what they did is they always went for looks, like they had Gussie Moran play Pauline Betts. So that's irritating. Right. We want to compete. You know, we want to be known for our accomplishments, not just our looks. People have no idea how irritating this is. Well, you started the women's tour, really, didn't you? I am the founder of the WTA, the the association or the union. We're not a union because we're we're, um, individual contractors. But some women didn't want to join, is that right? Correct. Why were they afraid? Because of their associations get in trouble. I mean, we had nine of us in 1970 signed a $1 contract. That is the birth of women's right. professional tennis. So you were, uh, I'd say, number two in the world at a point when, or were you number one, when Bobby Riggs said, I'm going to play a woman, and he played Margaret Court first. And, in May of 1973. And he beat her. Yes. So you had avoided uh, playing him before that. Yes, he'd that. been following me around. He'd show up every so often. Hey, Billy, Billy. We're both from Southern California. He's one of my heroes. So I knew all about him. He didn't know that, but I did. But he, and, uh, he had been a Wimbledon champion himself. Oh, yeah, he won the Triple Crown in 1939, uh, mixed with um, Alice Marble, who was one of my mentors, yes. So after Margaret Court lost to Bobby Riggs... Then I had to play. All right, so what were... It was 1973. Correct. And you played it in the Astrodome. hmm And the winner was going to get paid... The winner got paid $100,000. So were you nervous that you might lose? Oh, sure. So did you practice a lot? <laughs> Remember, we still had the Virginia Slims tour was going on that Gladys had started in 1970. We were playing tournaments and 
I was getting ready for that. So when you played against I him. actually played a tournament. Most people don't realize, but the week I played Bobby Riggs with all the media, with all the stuff, I also played the Virginia Slims of Houston that week. People don't even know that. So I was a little busy. Were you surprised at how much attention that... No, because here's what happens. 95% of the media is controlled by men. You know, okay, we have to go back, first of all, and set the scene. 1973, let's face it, Watergate was heating up. Vietnam was finally... Never, I don't think it's ever come to an end, really, the, with the veterans and everything. And then also, we had Title IX was passed, June 20, 23rd, 1972. Now, he was carried in by some women? He was on a rickshaw, and I was carried in. You were carried the, in, okay. By the, you know, the beefcake guys. So it was the best of uh, how many sets? He wanted to play three out of five. I said, I don't care. Let's play whatever. So you played Three the best. out of five, which I'd never done. All right. So the first set, who won that? I won that, but I was down 4-2. And that was the moment of truth. And when did you realize he really wasn't in shape? No, he was in shape. He was just so nervous. But he, he, he was partying a little more. I know his son was unhappy with him, but uh, he was also, he was hitting. But he would come to the net and you could easily pass him? No, no, it wasn't easy. Nothing's easy. Nothing's easy. It was, no, you, you, absolutely You had not. a hard time passing him. No, you have to understand the occasion. It was the only moment I, the only moment I was going to get to, you know, to have social change. But to also, we're only in our third year of women's professional tennis. So our tour was very young. It was a very tenuous position. So I didn't want Title IX to be weakened. I also wanted the world where men and women look like one team, that we're all in this together. So my job was to bring us together. And we had a lot of parties that night, a lot of betting. So the men and women were hanging out. He was betting during the middle of the match, is that yeah, right? Yeah, well, not the middle, at the beginning, the first game, and then he stopped. But so, so at what point during that match did you say, I can beat this guy, he's really not that good? What you learn as an athlete. Okay. Until you're shaking hands in the net, it's not over. Okay. And so, never, ever underestimate your opponent. My dad was so fanatical about two things. Never underestimate your opponent and always respect them, even if you don't like did them. Did your parents come to that match? Yes, I had to beg them to come, but they did. But my parents didn't go to much. They went to one Wimbledon, never been to the U.S. Open, never been to the French. Never, no, they, didn't, they liked to stay home. And yeah. they went to a few of Randy's baseball games. Don't forget, Randy's playing Major League Baseball. So, and the night before I played Bobby, Randy claims that I called him and told him to bet the house on the match so I was going to win. <laughs> and then Rosie Casals, who was one of the announcers that night with Howard Gosell and Gene Scott, she claimed she came in to see me in the locker room 20 minutes before, and she said, are you going to win or lose? What do you feel? How are you feeling? And I said, I'm going to win. I do not remember that at all. So I was definitely in the zone by then. You had a lot of injuries. You have a lot of knee operations. But I so didn't forth. have injuries during the match. I didn't not during the match. Not during matches, but I had a lot of operations. Yes. So after you were operating your knees and so forth, you have a lot of uh, scars from that. Mm -hmm. um, did you have the desire to come back every time, or you, just, you never said, hey, I had enough of this? No, I love it. I love hitting hey. the ball. You know, it's about, it's about the feeling when you play. It's the hitting the ball. It's trying to look for the right. perfect shot. You know you're always going to, it always eludes you. You know that, but it doesn't matter. You strive for it. And I just love to play. And I love to have to use my, all of myself. I like the, the mind, body, and, and soul. You know, in sports, the great thing about it is it's so, the physical, the emotional, the mental. I just love that. Having to, it's just all of myself. And I love to hit the ball. There's just a great feeling when you hit the ball. It's just, it's just beautiful. And then it's just like dance. Like, I love 
I love watching dance, modern or ballet or anything. It's how you, sh- you shape time and space. That's what we're doing, too, when we play tennis. It's like dancing, and my parents love to dance, so I'm sure that, that helped a lot. So, and, now, men, J- Jimmy Connors and John mm-hmm. McEnroe, were famous for yelling against the refs and screaming and so forth. How come women didn't do that so oh, much? Oh, I did. Really? Yeah, you, I didn't get it, you weren't as famous for it. You just didn't get as much attention Well, I'm also the generation before when we didn't have as many microphones on the okay. court like they did. Like John saying, uh, uh, what is it? You can't be serious? Yeah. Do you know how many times we've all said that? It's like, we didn't have the microphone. If we'd had the microphone, ooh. Is, ten, is tennis better off now having these, uh, these cameras and so you have the ability to challenge something? Is tennis much yes. better now? Yes. And That's great. If the players that you played against, who was the toughest opponent for you? Yourself is always the toughest, no matter how you cut okay, it. Okay, but you think, other than yourself. I think just the normal, you know, like Margaret Court, uh, Chris Everett, Martina, the, the number ones. Okay, and so uh, you played against Chrissy when she was coming up. Yeah, she's great. We're still tight. We're, tight. we're all, the, you know, we're good. And today, uh, if you could, had to pay to watch a tennis player, you had to actually pay to watch a tennis, you haven't probably paid to watch a tennis player in a long time, right? Oh, I pay sometimes, yes. Okay. All right. I hate, you know, people always ask for free tickets, really. You're not going to have a sport if you keep getting free. So I shouldn't call you for tickets, I guess. Right? No, you can call <laughs> okay. well, you, you, you get a pass. All right, okay. So if you had to pay together. to watch one player that's been around. One? Just one. If you had to pay to watch one player, you can only watch one player. Who would you pay to watch? Oh, God, there's so many I love. I've, had, I've seen so many Or right, you can have two. <laughs> I mean, who do you enjoy watching well, the I most? can tell you who I used to love to watch to play when I was actually still playing a little. It was Jimmy Connors. It just gives it up. He gets the crowd. He and John probably be the other one. But Jimmy just, he just loves to be the showman. I've never, he just loves it. And he just gets so intense and he brings the crowd in. And then I think um, Chris and Martina's rivalry. Those two, you know, have a contrast of styles. Uh, They have one of the greatest rivalries in sports, Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova. And if they had been men with that rivalry, oh, we would never hear the end of it. Let's talk about World Team Tennis. Uh, you helped start that. What is World yeah. Team Tennis status today? We're going into our 42nd season. We have the equal amount of men and women on each team, and we have the same contribution by both genders. And it's really important, I think, to have that equal contribution because equality, mm-hmm. since I've been 12 years old, is what I've been fighting for. I had an epiphany when I was 12. I was one year in the game, and I was daydreaming at the Los Angeles Tennis Club. And I noticed that everybody who played had white shoes, white socks, white clothes, played with white balls then, and everybody who played was white. And I said, where's everybody else? And that was my moment where it changed my whole life. And I said, I'm going to fight for equal rights and opportunities for men and women the rest of my life, and I'm one of the luckiest kids in the world because why? I have tennis. And tennis, I'm sure I didn't use the word platform as a 12-year-old, but I understood already that it wasn't just national, that it was international. And I said, I have a most unbelievable opportunity if I can become number one in the world, which was already my, my hope. So at 11, I want to be number one in the world. At 12, I had my epiphany. And that's what I've been fighting for my whole life. And world team tennis, if you watch a world team tennis right. match, you see the way I want the world to look. Right. So- I want men and women on the same team. I want us working. And I want equal pay for equal work. I want, and I'm, that's what the Billie Jean King uh, leadership uh, initiative is all about. Is, and I, it's men and women. It's not just women. I did the Women's Sports Foundation in 1974. 
because that was two years after Title IX. It was just after the King-Riggs match, and I was very worried that Title IX might be weakened, and I did not want that to happen. You were awarded the Medal of Freedom by President Obama. What a day. So what was that like when you got that? Well, first of all, just being told by Valerie Jarrett called me to tell me. She said, the president wants to give you the, and I'm like, what? I didn't think I heard her right. I'm like, wow. So that was one of the highlights of well, your- Well, also, yes, because here's our first person of color president ever, and that's what am I fighting for? And they didn't talk about me being an athlete when he talked about it. He talked about fighting for equal rights is the reason I got it, and the LGBT community. That's what made me the happiest. And also, uh, Harvey Milk- Right. Harvey Milk got it. Um, Posthumously, his, but his nephew is there. And I don't think any president has ever said LGBT or anything like that. It was an amazing moment. Just sitting there with all these people who, John Lewis walked in, I go, oh my God, I love John Lewis. I'm like, oh, I, can't think. I, I get to get a presidential medal of freedom with John Lewis? Oh my God, I was like beside myself. And then I happened to be the first woman athlete, which is pathetic. It's good news, bad news. I mean, it's always nice to be the first, but that's not what I care about. I care about it's not right because all these male athletes get them because the presidents are guys and they love right. to give them, you know, their, their childhood hero that played baseball or football or basketball. I'm like, well, you, don't choose, you don't choose women athletes the same way. Otherwise, they would have, where's Althea Gibson? Why didn't she have one? She was our Jackie Robinson of tennis. She doesn't have anything out of the US Open. We got to have something for her. I keep trying to get it done. Well, I'm not getting it done. Well, at the, uh, at the Forest Hills, or not Forest Hills, the U.S. Open. That's right, Forest Hills. West they, they've club. named the entire center after you. Oh, you mean the new one? Yes, the new, they that, did. That's a big honor. Were you surprised that, that they did that? Surprised? Yeah, you could have knocked me over with a feather, right. of course. Okay. Franklin Johnson, who was the president of the USTA at the time, called me. I was at a Philadelphia Freedom World Team tennis match, actually. Perfect. Um, I'm outside with it, and it was outside at Cabrini College, and it was so noisy because it was a tight match. It was just crazy. I thought I heard him, but I'm thinking, that's not what he said. Just get over it. And then Franklin repeated it when I got on the phone, and I said, seriously? Do you know how many fights I've had with USTA? Seriously. <laughs> no, this is amazing because this shows you what's possible. So, and so that night was a really incredible moment. So how do you compare that moment with the Presidential Medal of Freedom with Wimbledon, or hard to compare them all, I guess? Uh, probably the Presidential Medal of Freedom was probably, because, you know, I love the word freedom. I own the Philadelphia Freedoms. Elton John wrote Philadelphia Freedom for me. Uh, right. And I love freedom for, since I was a child. So when you look back on uh, your career, what have you enjoyed the most? Uh, winning tennis tournaments? I'm just happy hitting a tennis ball. I don't okay. have to win titles. Okay. Uh, I did want to win Wimbledon. You know, you, when you're young, you want to win a certain amount. But I, I wanted to be the greatest ever, for sure. But then the quality thing just took over. Okay. And also starting the tour took over. It just did. Okay. I didn't get to practice properly. I, was, you know, I, don't, I don't think people realize how many meetings we had. We had meetings daily, and I was the leader. They chose me as the leader. So if somebody came to you and said, I have a child who is really well-coordinated. That I, happens all the time. All right, and, and I'm a great athlete, and I have a child who's very coordinated, and I want him or her to be a great tennis player. What advice would you give him or her uh, to, to really grow up? Can you go to one of these tennis academies, get the parent to stay away? What is it that makes first a champion? First of all, I would want to talk to the child. And the first question I ask every person, but particularly young people, 
is why do you play tennis? And you'd be surprised. And they Some say of them go boom, like that, fun, I love it. Others go, I'm not sure. But first know why you play. You gotta know why you play, I think that's major. So let me ask you a final question. Um, of all the things that you've done, what have you enjoyed the most? Has it been playing tennis, leading, being a leader for equality, uh, this interview? What would you say <laughs> has been the most enjoyable thing you've ever done? The most important things for me? Yes. Relationships, by far. Friendship, relationships, in the end, they're everything. Thank Mom, you. Dad, and all that Thank guy. you very much for a great conversation. We're done. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. Great. Great. It was fun. Thank you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.